Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. I've got with me a man who has made the cover of the Wall Street Journal, has released 800% clean comedy videos, probably more than that by now, warms up audiences for some of Hollywood's top sitcoms, and can perform the entire Bible in under 30 minutes. And he's also written and directed a feature motion picture. It's uh, Robert G. Lee. Robert, how are you doing? I am doing very well today. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I I tell you what, I think we met a few months ago um, when the pandemic was just starting. It was in one of those rooms where we get together and chat about how bad the world is right now and try to cheer each other up. And (laughs) pajamas, I think, Marty um, Marty Simpson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that it was really neat uh, meeting you, and then you did a really cool thing. Uh, the the, kind of a joke of the day type thing or an observation of the day. And I really like those. I shared a whole bunch of them, but I really liked when you were doing that. And I thought that was cool. So I thought, you know, let's, let's get him on and uh, talk about what he's got going on. So thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Of course. I think those, those are the Corona diaries that, or or yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I I throw a lot of things against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what we all do these days, and it, it, it's uh, sometimes it's just fun to throw something against the walls. So let's dig in. Where are you at now, Robert? Where do you live? I'm in Los Angeles, California. So LA. I am, uh, it used to be the entertainment capital world, but there's no entertainment now. So I don't, yeah. they're the capital of homelessness. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. It's Los <laughs> and where are you originally from? I'm a Midwest boy, so I'm a Hoosier, born oh. in um, well, born in Newcastle, Indiana, raised in Indianapolis. So uh, my mom and brother are still there. I've still got a lot of roots back there, so I go back as often as I can. So I love the Midwest. Cool. I'm an Indiana guy myself. I'm up in Mishawaka, up by South Bend. Up, uh, around that Amish country up there. Yep, you got it. I'm actually going to Shipshawana tomorrow, so that uh, it's... Shipshawana, that's what I love to say, the Shipshawana. Hopefully <laughs> have a great time there. Yeah. And, uh, I, I was actually in, in, in the, I lived there for, uh, two or three years. I was an East side boy living in uh Concord East apartments, uh, right off of Pendleton Pike. And, oh uh, yeah, okay. it, I know exactly what that is. Let's, let's get to the next question. When did you start doing stand up? That was in college. Uh, I was set to go to Indiana university where your kids are going, mm-hmm. uh, but I ended up at Ohio University. So on my uh, it's on my SATs, it said uh, check two schools, and one was Indiana, and the next one was Ohio. I was like, all right, that's close. Uh, but I, I did it because they had hands-on experience, and so I mm. uh, 
we started a radio comedy show and I found a partner because I was too insecure to do it by myself, but I started doing stand up. So this is back in the seventies when I was, uh, it was with a partner and we would do character bits and things like that around uh-huh. campus in front of bands before in bars, you know, so it was, it was definitely school of hard knocks, but that's, that's when I started. Then I took some time off. And so really becoming a stand-up comic has been, it was 33 years ago when I started. Okay. Okay. It's been a long time. So we're talking late eighties. Right. So thinking about when you did it the first time and when you came back to it, what, what was it that brought you back? Was it, you know, the, the, need to get those laughs or what, what, what was it that brought you back? Mine was simply, uh, I'm, I'm the cheapest one I could hire to, uh, to do my material. I was, <laughs> I was writing a lot of scripts and I was trying to get things out. It's like, I, I, I don't want to write for other comedians. It's so hard to explain what I'm thinking. Uh-huh. And so I um, said, all right, I just have to get over my fear of doing characters or just being me on stage. I'm just going to do it. And mm-hmm. so I actually, I stuck my toe in the water by teaching a, st- a stand-up comedy class. And so my wife was working for one of those, what are now online universities. It was just, a, they had, you know, eclectic things. And so let's have a stand-up comedy class. So I started doing that, started emceeing a couple things mm-hmm. before I jumped into it full force. But after that, it, it, I, it was very quick. And then I started warming up television shows and doing my standup. So, um, yeah, it was, I dove in pretty quick. Um, yeah, yeah late eighties, but at the beginning it was just, I, I just knew I wanted, to, I didn't know what I wanted to do, especially in college. It was like, I, I, I know there's comedy. I love Monty Python. I love Woody Allen. I don't think you're allowed to say that anymore, but <laughs> I, at that time it was so popular. And I just, I just knew there was something I had to do to get out of Indiana. So uh-huh. that was, uh, <laughs> That's great. So this is this is one of the questions that I call kind of off topic, but uh, this is what I like to talk to people about when I'm just chatting. Uh, so are you inspired by any books that you're reading, podcasts that you're listening to, music, articles, people? Is anything right now just uh, kind of ticking all the boxes for you and making you inspired? Well, there's – I live – by being inspired by art. Uh, uh-huh. A lot of people get their energy from nature. Not me. I, I, nature's out to kill you. I, I can really <laughs> care. My wife loves to hike and get out. So I will do it with her. But it's like, and we were up in Washington and everybody's going, and there's, they all love it. They go, look at these trees. They're the same trees that we saw 10 minutes ago. <laughs> so that's, that's what I, that's where I don't get inspiration from nature. Uh, it is, I love story. I love art. I love to look at, um, I mean, the big part of COVID right now is that we can't go to plays. We can't go to concerts. We really can't get out. Yeah. Movies. My wife and I have been to one movie because they o- opened it up in Orange County. So I love that. So Netflix has been a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, as far as inspiration, uh, that, that inspiration is a different story. Now, I would say the biggest story for inspiration that gets me excited, I come from a faith-based background. So Tim Keller's book, um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, which sounds like a weird book to be inspired by, uh-huh. but He's so smart, and it really works in this pandemic of all the crap everybody's going through, that there's always light at the end of the tunnel. There's always a plan for the the difficulties that you go through. So that actually inspires me. Um, And then everything else is just sort of whatever's happening that day. I mean, the way I write my comedy is... Um, you got to get out. You have to. So, you know, I had a a procedure and okay, there's a comedy routine. And then it hit me. Oh, how weird. um, 
comparison contrast how weird is today's society says well what if the wizard of oz was written today and so i've i've been updating the wizard of oz and so it's just ideas come in my head and then i do research and you know we watch the wizard of oz and i write down every single line then i transpose it with today and i guess that's how you could say it's inspiring Um, Uh watching old movies like casablanca it's like there that's what a man is that's what life is this is what it should be um i love art and feeding that in and then different things come out it's mm-hmm. long answer but that's the best way i can put it right now right are you you seem like kind of a spur of the moment type of guy when those ideas hit your head you just act on it instead of thinking through what uh what it's actually going to take to do it and th- is that am i reading that right from you oh I, i'm always carried away by ideas i, yeah. I live Ideas. It's like if I don't have an idea, it's like mm, today's okay. Yeah. Ooh, I got an idea. Go. Yeah. And so that right, what's it going to be? Okay. Well, I've I've adapted the the Wizard of Oz idea to both a stand up uh, comedy set and also into a New York Times article. Okay, like a movie pitch. Okay, I'll try both ways. Uh-huh. Um, the book that I, I've, I've got a book coming out in a couple of weeks, and that was definitely just one of those big inspiration things. Like let's go. Um, uh-huh. I didn't know that I was going to spend the next three years working on it. But um, when I think you might've seen the Corona diaries that started with, well, Corona happened. It's like, well, here's an idea. Every movie you see in the future, it's like, and we have these tapes from the past and uh, people always look at them and say, well, we need to have a, a tape explaining what the Corona di- what the coronavirus was for people in the future when right. it wipes us out. So I, I said, okay, that's a, that's a fun idea. So for 73 days straight, I did, what does it mean to be a human every day? I did yeah. a different podcast. Uh, so yeah, I definitely led by inspiration yeah. and whatever ideas are as, as hot at the moment. That's just, to me, that's just fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very much the same as you and my wife would say impulsive, uh, <laughs> because I get these ideas and I'm like, okay, first of all, I commit to the idea by telling other people about it and inviting them along with me. And then I find out how much work it's going to be. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm committed. Got to do it. So <laughs> sometimes at the expense of, uh, of, uh, good times with my wife, but, uh, uh, that's why I, I'm a little bit more careful now. Um, so the last question for the rapid round, uh, is, and, and I, I, I used to ask what was your favorite album or comedy special? And I kind of take it down to top three. Now, do you have like a top three favorite comedy special or album? Well, I can give you the whole lineage. When I was five, and I do remember this very distinctly, and you, you, another person you can't talk about anymore, uh, Bill Cosby. I saw yeah. Bill Cosby on TV, and I said, that is what I want to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents told me I could not be black, so I had to uh, adapt it a little bit. But when I was a kid, I got, you know, what I, I started off as a child, and I got every single Bill Cosby album. And mm-hmm. That was childhood. Then it went on to George Carlin, and he did Seven Dirty Words, Class Clown, Seven Dirty Words You Can't Say on Television. Mm-hmm. And that was in high school, and that was very popular. Then I moved on to uh, Monty Python. Monty Python was my, my college years, and I remember watching The Holy Grail for the first time. I had no idea who Monty Python was. They released it in the States, and where I was working, they sponsored a big comedy night. Oh, this will be fun. And we said, that was the stupidest thing I ever saw. Then it worked the next day. We started thinking about bits. Like, yeah. oh, that, 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 that was pretty funny. That was pretty <laughs> funny. We all had to go back like a week later and we, cause we finally got it. Yeah. And so Monty Python, very much the irreverent um, type of humor in the middle of all that. 
silent movies. Um, I was too shy to ask anybody out in high school, so I went to see the Marx Brothers, not silent, but they were, it was an old theater. Mm-hmm. Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. I watched all those films and just absorbed them. Uh, then as it moved on into stand-up comedy and writing, boys, I, I would say of late, of, a, of the last decade, the funniest thing I think you'll ever watch is Billy Crystal's 700 Sundays. Mm-hmm. It was a live one-man show, and it was so warm and endearing. He cur- curses like a blue sailor, uh, like a well, curse is blue, like a sailor, yeah. about halfway through. We have to live with that. But it, it's so warm and touching. 700 Sundays, there's, um, his father died after he figured out living with them for 700 Sundays and mm-hmm. his life um, with them. It's, so it's, that is artistry at its best. It's family and it's comedy. Um, I love Jim Gaffigan. I, jo- I love John Mulaney. Uh, so th- as far as Netflix specials that have come out of late, I would say – Early Jim Gaffigan and later John Mulaney. Those are my favorites. Mm. Although Seinfeld's latest one is fantastic. It's just, there's the craft of it right there. Yeah, um, yeah. All of those combined are big influences and have a big part of my life. Yeah, there's there's some uh, good stuff in there. I uh, was I was also, Cosby was also my first because I had to wrestle my brother whom I slept with oh, and just listen to it you know, hundreds of times. And then, you know, Steve Martin got into it. Uh, Tom Dreesen was actually my first after that album. Uh, I see him behind you. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. He's my guy. And, uh, I, uh, I've had him on the show a couple of times, but, uh, he's, I, I saw him on Mike Douglas and you remember what happened when you like somebody on a talk show and you wanted to see him again, you had to go through the TV guide and see, check out all the shows. Is he going to be on Dinah? Is he going to be a Merv? Two months. There we go. Is he going to be on Johnny? So yeah, it was, it was, uh, always tough to find him, but I always managed and saw him quite a few times during that time. And then Steve Martin took over after that and then Letterman's. So yeah. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Steve Martin as well. I saw him live and it's probably the funniest concert I've ever been to in my mm-hmm. life. I'm- that and the Billy Crystal one bent over crying. We were laughing. Yeah. And this is at his peak. He wasn't at the King Tut concert stadium. It was still a full, like a thousand or 2000 people where he still had the arrow through his head and yeah. doing the excuse me. Uh, <laughs> it was just, it, it was brilliant. The, the breaking down of, of all the, you know, the, the, well, I guess the, the, the personification of a stand-up using his Vegas style smarmy act. It was just genius. So yeah. I've loved Steve Martin ever since. Right. Um, so while we're still live here and I've got quite a few people watching, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the book you've got coming out, but I do, I do have a request in the, if you could do it as James Mason, uh, I would, I would appreciate at least part of it is James Mason. I would really appreciate that. Yes, I do have a routine where I realize that everyone I do is dead. Yeah. Uh, every voice I do. And so uh, I know you saw my dry bar special. So you saw me do James Mason. And that was one of those voices where once you get it in your head, you go, oh, I, I know how to do him. So yeah, my, the book coming out is called What's the Big Idea? Uh, a Comedian Explains God, the Universe, and Other Minor Stuff. <laughs> now... I wrote it. So anyway, he just goes on. So James Mason, you can give James Mason a one sentence and it'll take him a half hour to get through it. Uh-huh. 
but it's, it's the up and down. Do you think so? Yeah. Now that I love Jerry James Mason, but Cary Grant. There's I've got a friend who's a comedian, Ken Kington. I don't know if you know him or not, but his assistant loves Cary Grant, uh-huh. and so. I, every time I'd go back to Atlanta to visit Ken, his assistant, Becky, would make me leave a message on her phone as Carrie Grant. <laughs> Becky's not here right now today. She's tired up at the moment. Please go away. And so, was, and so, was, so her friend would call up, who, who, who is this guy doing Carrie Grant? So, yeah, voices have always been fun. It's never the mainstay of what I do, but, um, you know, it, I, I have a talent for mimicry. Yeah. And when I sing in my act, my wife goes, but you can stay on key. I go, yes, but don't add music because that throws me off. Yeah, no so, doubt. Oh, you can really sing. No, no, I can't. <laughs> I can fake my way and imitate somebody else. And if you add music, I'm totally lost. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, I so much appreciate the, the, the James Mason impression. And you know who does an excellent James Mason is Gilbert Gottfried. No. Yeah. Really? I'll actually find one of the podcasts because he has his own podcast. I'll find one of them where he does James Mason and he does an entire scene. And for some reason, I've always loved the cadence of James Mason's voice. And, and it just, when I heard you do it, I'm like, Oh man, I love that. I got to watch a movie. I got, I got to pull up, pull up the uh, old James Mason stuff and watch it. But I love that stuff. Um, so as far as the book's concerned, um, I know that's coming out fairly soon. What was the inspiration to write that book? Well, uh, it is called what's the big idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, a comedian explains God, the universe and other minor stuff. And it really started with society where we are now that everyone's disagreeing about everything. Mm-hmm. And, just started with, okay, what's, what's one thing we can all agree on? And it really came down to, I think we can all agree that the universe is expanding. And so therefore it must have a beginning. And so if we can all agree on the big bang, let's start there. Mm-hmm. And so it's the intersection. And I just, it was just basically a big inspiration, but let's a smart Alec talks about the intersection between faith and science. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one of those people that says, oh, you know, science is bad. No, I believe in science, but I also believe in God. And so I'm that anomaly that everyone dislikes. Uh, but I wanted to explain from the smart aleck in the back of the room going, excuse me, you, you know, this makes no sense, right? Uh-huh. To those who poo-poo, you know, the flat earthers or the people who say, and I'll admit it, I don't believe the earth was made in seven days. I don't. I, and I give many reasons why. Science says it's 14 billion years old. That's our universe. And they, the things prove it like light. They can measure the distance, that, the speed that light is in 14 billion years. Sorry, you can't get around it. Uh-huh. But the way I explain it is when God talked to Moses, it was like a physicist talking to uh, a special needs preschool. And, he, and, and, and at that time, Moses had what? The Egyptian language uh, to, to write in. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't have, they didn't understand the theory behind black holes. They understood Okay, I did it in seven days, seven time periods. And for you, um, you know, for a day, um, you know, a thousand years is like a day to me. So God's already saying, I'm outside of time. Mm-hmm. Just understand that. But this is how I did it. First, it was dark. Then I made the universe. Then I did this. Then I made the sun. And so it all lines up. It, it's, it's, we'll know on the other side how it was all done. But I'm not holding on to what I consider poetic language in the Bible saying, it was done in six days. You must believe this or you're going to hell. And right. I was like, you know what? You all need to relax. Uh-huh. So I'm just trying to, again, take a take my faith perspective and show that there's an intelligent design behind the universe. It's mm-hmm. like it's amazing some of the facts 
that and how things are made and the odds of it even coming close to staying the way it is. We should all be dead in, in, in just in, any time now. Mm. But if there is an intelligent designer behind it, well, let me introduce who the person who claimed to be the designer. And that's to my from my point of view, that's God. And so I break down all that in this book. And so, again, a smart Alex view, intersection between faith and science. And it's a lot of fun. And it'll be just like my routines. No one will get it. So yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> hey, I get it. And I've I've really enjoyed your outtakes of the covers, too. Uh, the, oh, the, that, okay. the, that's been hilarious. <laughs> And for those of you, it's, so uh, the publisher is still working on my cover. So I just have the series of rejected covers. And I started off with a romantic cover. And then lately I said, okay, let's, you know, Obama's coming out with a book the very same day. So I, I just took it, I took his face off and put mine on and just you know, two men that influenced the country, obviously a lie. Uh, but the latest <laughs> one is no one reads books, but gaming is popular. So I'm, I'm changing my book, adapting it into a video game. And then over the next couple of weeks, it's going to be a graphic novel. And eventually it's going to be a brochure. That's mm. all it's going to be just a brochure. That's my whole book because nobody reads anymore. Mm. Uh, so I did, I did write a book at a time when <laughs> literacy is down to its lowest. I think maybe <laughs> 5% of the population can still read cursive. I'm not really sure what that statistic <laughs> is, but uh, I, I wrote it for me and for, my daughter and my son and my, my kids and anybody else that wants to pick it up. So uh-huh. thank you. I, I, the, the, the fake covers have been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed yeah. it. Sorry, I, I don't know how to publicize a book, so let's do what I do. Yeah. I <laughs> well, it sounds like it's going to be really good. And I'll, I'll look forward to that when it, that comes out. So one of the things in looking at what I can see of your career and, and really from the dry bar special, I can, you know, I see that uh, you are, are, first of all, very relatable as a comic that, uh, you, the stuff you say pokes enough fun at old people that young people laugh and enough fun at young people that old people laugh and it's a good mix. So that dry bar special was, uh, those go around 30 minutes. What I want to know is how much blood, sweat, and tears went into the material that you actually put forth for that special. Well, the good news is, uh, once you've been doing it for 30 years, you have a plethora of material to cover. But uh-huh. you're absolutely right. I'm trying to, trying to look at, okay, what will be relatable? Because I know that we're at this point in society where we're very divided. So uh, I, I don't like conflict. Uh, I, I'd rather be the guy that everyone could say, okay, we can just relax and enjoy this and have a good time. I love the writing process. Mm-hmm. And the writing process, for me, that's I, I perform it again. I'm the cheapest one I can hire. Uh, I, I do it almost out of necessity, but it's it's that idea that we talked about. It's like oh, I I got I get to go down a rabbit trail and have a great time with this routine. So this was kind of an amalgamation of my my last couple years of work as a stand up. So uh, if I go back, if I you know, and if I'm fortunate enough to sell enough DVDs, uh, the next one or enough copies of the of the special is basically you have to pay for the special. And then if you do that, then you get to come back into another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would then kind of mix like half of my old stuff and some brand new stuff I'm working on. But the new is always the most fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a CD a couple of years ago called I'm Sorry. And that was the, the first or second routine I did was just apologizing for my white privilege, income inequality, and just being a man in general. Uh-huh. So I found that that was kind of releasing tension because you get up on stage and go, who's this old white man? Yeah. And you have to address the elephant in the room. So 
that kind of progressed over the last couple of years. But it is my material. For, it, it's always nice to have a record of where you are now. All mm. my DVDs did that. And so this is I'm trying to think if I have any material in there. I have one or two routines that I've been doing for a couple of years, more than five um, years. But for the most part, pretty much everything was in the last two or three years. Mm. And it, Another reason for that is the intimacy of a room. People can tell when a routine is tired and it's like, Oh, you've been doing that for 20 years. Yeah. And that's why some of the new comics have so much energy because they're just, they're still forming. They're trying to find where is this routine going to land? Uh-huh. And so there's a looseness to it, but there's a freshness. So I, I just find with material, if I do things that have been, I've, I've been doing for too many years, I've got to put it away for a while. Then I bring it out and mm-hmm. it's fresh again. So um, blood, sweat and tears. Mainly, the main difficulty is just trying to find stage time where I can do a half hour to 45 minutes. Mm. And then you can really tell, okay, this is A material, that's B, and that we're going to cut that. I don't like that at all. Mm. That was the difficulty because um, I did it a year ago, and still there just aren't that many places to go out and perform. So, uh, fortunately, I've got an improv around here. I can do things there a little bit. If I go on the road or if I do a banquet, um, you know, you just you just work out your stuff, but it's mm-hmm. really that, yeah. The, the 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 newness of it helped me a lot. So I wouldn't say I, I even today I, I would switch some things around. I did it in there, but um, I don't know if I, it gives you an answer to your question. Or not. Yeah. Well, I well, first I really enjoyed it, and second, I felt like the segues were perfect. It just it just flowed really well for me, um, and. Um, I mean, you've got a few little misdirects, but mostly it's just pretty personal. And the question I, I've got a couple that came up from that. Um, first off, uh, how long have you been with your wife? Been just, just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary. Okay, great. So, it, and my wife and I have been together 37 and it, it kind of shows in the way that you talk with the familiarity with your, with your, uh, significant other and stuff like that. So that, you know, I, it's hard to explain that type of a relationship, that length of a relationship to people these days. And I think you did a good job of it. Uh, because people, I mean, I, I tell the comics around here, you know, I've been with Lisa for 37 years and they look at me like I'm foreign and, you know, I just came from out of the sky and, and they, they just can't because their parents, none of, none of them stuck around that long. And so, so it's a, it's, it's kind of a, a different type of subject. And I like the way you did it because you didn't, you didn't throw it in their face that you've been with your wife for a long time. You, you talked about the push and pull that it takes to have a relationship and stuff like that. So I thought that was really good. Yeah. And it's the commonality of man. It's like, you don't want to ever do. I remember I went to a singles event one time and I was going to perform and the singer on before me, the last song he sang was, and this is about my wife and I love her so much. And, you know, we, I can't imagine life without her. I go, this is a singles conference. What are you doing here? You're, you're making all these people feel horrible. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, oh, he has a wife. I'm alone. So it, it's never to point out how good I am, but just this is what we all struggle with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've struggled in relationships. We all do. We're, mm-hmm. we're together 39 years, but year 19 was the time she said we're done. And so we had to go into counseling and that's why she's a counselor today. Yeah. So I am proof that uh, a good wife, but working on the relationship is more important than my ego being bruised. So yeah. it's, um, 
it's definitely been a long haul. We're in a great place right now, but it yeah. took a long time to get there. It really yeah. did. You know, it's really cool to find out during this pandemic when we had to spend so much time together the and the kids are grown and we still actually like each other. Um, so that was, I, cause we, you know, you hear stories of people, you know, they, they, you know, they've always worked outside the home and they don't spend all that much time together. And, uh, when they got, uh, you know, pretty much chained to each other for a few months. Uh, they found out, eh, I don't know about this. And <laughs> I think the divorce rate went through the roof because it was yeah. like, I like it better when we're not together. So, uh, yeah, let's get divorced. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it looks like both of us came out of it on the other side. You talked a little bit about ego and you also talked about, uh, a B and C jokes and things like that. When did it become evident to you that this joke that you absolutely love that you think should hit every time, when, when did you have enough sense to actually take those that you love, but the crowd doesn't? And what, how long did it take you to have enough sense to actually take those out and, and say, okay, you, you just have to stay here now? It is the most painful thing. Seinfeld says it's like, uh, every joke is trying out for the team. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, you, you got to be good enough to make the team. Yeah. And so you, you become, at a certain point, you become dispassionate about it. At the beginning, they're all your children and you love them and you can't imagine cutting any of them. Yeah. But after a while, it's like, no, you're really dragging us down. Yeah. You got to go. So there's this, <laughs> There's a little bit of heartlessness that comes with being a comedian because it's like, no, nope. what you, I find is I like to squeeze my routines. I always overwrite when I start it. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, you know what? I'm not that opening. is just way too soft. There's too many words. I, I tell people, it's like, no, no, you're driving around the neighborhood. Uh, you haven't found the joke yet. You've got to find the street and turn into the driveway. That's the joke. Uh-huh. Jokes are very precise. You can't be loose with them. So because I am very anal and how I write and I want things to be precise, I started taping my routines early on. And mm-hmm. the audience tells you there's, I'm sorry, there's 30 seconds between laughs here. And that's the joke that's dying. You can, I can go from here to here and I'll use my writing skill to just bring those two butt, butt up two ideas together. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, now the routine works. Yeah. So a lot of people just don't know how to edit. And that's almost the, one of the major skills. So when did it happen to me early on? It was like, I, I want to have, Jay Leno says, you got to have six or seven laughs every single minute. And if you're not getting it, it's not the audience, it's you. Yeah. So you have to go back and dispassionately look at your routine and say, what is the driving force? What's dragging me down? Mm-hmm. And how can I, and so then it's just rewriting it. I, I went to film school. One of the film schools where they taught us how to do, they said, your first draft, is always lousy. And it's like, hey, shut up. I go, no, no, your first draft is always bad. Yeah. And now I've gotten to the point, a lot of writers and I, we, we just call the first draft, draft the vomit pass. Yeah. You're just that. You're just getting <laughs> it out. And, and then you shape it, which sounds lousy to shape vomit, but that's really what you're yeah. doing. <laughs> you go back over it and over it and over it. And then now I found it. Now I know where it is. So uh-huh. that, yeah, that's not hard for me at all. I actually enjoy the writing and the editing process because uh-huh. once you fool the audience with a misdirect or I say fool, that's probably very hard to, that's a harsh term, but that's essentially what you're doing. You're a magician and you're hiding the jokes over here and they think you're going one way and then you flip it and boom, here's the big laugh. Yeah. And, and then they, they have a great time. It's like, okay, we're all, you know, it's based on honesty, but there's enough twists and turns in here that keep the story interesting. So yeah, yeah the craft of it, I, that's what I really love. Yeah. 
And you also mentioned uh, put, putting them away for a while and then bringing them back. And um, in the short time that I've been doing it, I've I found that if you do that, uh, you sometimes come up with a much better joke just by changing a couple things around. Exactly. Yeah, because when you have that, whenever you write a, a script or a story or even a routine, if you don't put it away, you, you get too close to it. And mm-hmm. it's when you talk about it, distance helps you so much. Go, oh, what was I thinking? Yeah. That, that whole first part is just that's just gas. No, no, get to it here. Yeah. yeah it really does help to put it away. Mm-hmm. So when did the the TV warm-up stuff come up for you? How did you get into that? Uh, I had a friend who is uh, no longer with us. His name was Ray Combs. He was the host of Family Feud for a while. Yeah. Uh, we comedy back in Indiana and Ohio. And he came out to California pretty much together to, you know, try and break in. And he lied his way into a TV show. Uh, say he called up as if he was his own agent mm-hmm. and said, I get this guy. His name is Ray Combs. He's the hottest comedian. You're going to love him. And so somebody got sick. And so he got his first shot. Well, when he got his first shot, we had to get together and we wrote all the material. Okay. What could, you could do this. You could do this. You could do Cause you've got to fill three or four hours of stuff and mm-hmm. it's not routines it's bits and audience participation that kind of, so we came up with all these things and then from that i would help ray on his shows and so when he got a break to star or be a guest star in one show he brought me into um golden girls he was warming up golden girls at the time with b arthur and all that mm-hmm. and so that's where i got my first shot when i got that shot and i already helped ray and i knew enough about warm-up i knew how to do it that I started calling everybody like designing women. Okay. So they came to see me at um, golden girls. And so I got that show and then I got on the perfect strangers and got with Miller Boyette. So it's a catch 22 in TV warmup. You can't do it until you've done it until Mm -hmm. you've done it. You can't do it because producers (laughs) don't want to hire you unless you've done it. Uh So I was lucky enough to have someone recommend me and and I had worked enough that I knew what to do. I still Uh made some missteps and had to, apologized to be Arthur. I think I made an AIDS joke at that time. It just came uh-huh. out. She had some friends with AIDS. Like, Oh my God, uh-huh. I almost lost my whole career because of one bad, stupid off the cuff joke. So you learn what not to say. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, it was, what was nice about warm up there. There's and everything is always a double edged sword. It was great. Cause I've been able to make my living at it for several decades. Uh-huh. The bad part is people don't want you to go anywhere else. I was able to write on a couple shows, but you kind of get stuck in that, um, that, well, that little golden um, prison cups. Mm. Uh, the good news is uh, I did nothing but ad lib. I don't do material when I do TV warmup because they're not there to see me. They're there for the show. Right. Now I have certain jokes and routines that I do week after week and I'll change them and fix them and adapt them. Well, what I learned was how to ad lib over hours and hours and hours and learn the rhythm of an audience and know when they need to be pushed and when they, when they need to pull back. So it was invaluable training. Um, it's just, and now finally I get a little bit of a pension and I get health insurance. Uh, SAG finally caught up and they started to pay us for, and of course now, now that the, they're, we're filming nothing, um, it doesn't do me any good, but um, that's how I got started. I was very fortunate to have an in and fortunate that I was able to meet the right people um, that I fit on their shows, so like TGIF, the yeah. you know, step-by-step family matters, all those step-by-step, all those shows were mm-hmm. run by one group called Miller Boyette. And I did almost all their shows oh, for cool. gosh, close to a decade. So that was a lot of fun. So what's your job as, as, as warm up? I mean, where are you supposed to take the audience? Well, that's a good, most people don't know that a, a TV show takes three to four hours, sometimes five hours. Uh, the longest I think was designing women that went eight hours one night. Wow. Uh, there, there've been long, long shows. Um, 
you have to get the audience laughing. Mm-hmm. So that sounds simple, but no, right out of the gate, get them to that point that the producers want so that when they start their show, the audience is laughing at a certain level. And then as the show goes on, they're, they're rewriting lines that can take sometimes a half hour of rewriting. Uh, the, the actor go change their clothes. Shelley Long was famous on Cheers for ironing her skirt between every take. So every take got longer and longer because she had to iron her clothes every time they uh, went to another scene. So there are delays. And your job is to keep the audience at the same level where they started so that the end of the show they're laughing just as hard as they did at the beginning and mm-hmm. it becomes a party and uh, you know, they're, they're definitely waves. So when they're, when they dip, that's what I do like a dance contest. Let's do some high energy. And when they're good, I almost leave them alone. It's like, okay, folks, we're going to do that scene again. You've got to laugh the same as you did the first time. So a lot of it is just information. A lot of it's just being a host and a lot of it is being um, just the funniest guy that um, these people have met and interviewing right. them and ad living and having a good time. So my job is, it's to be the genial host uh-huh. and make everybody feel so comfortable that we're all in this together and we're supporting these actors and these producers that we all love on the show. And right. it's so easy when they love the show. Like when I was doing Wings or Drew Carey or New Adventures of Old Christine, uh-huh. those were fans. But when you start a new show, oh, it could be hard yeah. because people don't know the actors. Uh, and unless the writing is exemplary and they hit it out of the park, like everybody loves Raymond and Frazier, those kind of shows just uh-huh. out of the, out of the gate, they were great, but other shows take a while to find themselves. Uh-huh. Um, family matters didn't find Steve Urkel till the end of the first season. Right. They were almost going to be canceled. And then, they, then they got the, did I do that guy? And uh-huh. the audience went wild and that <laughs> became the show. Uh, so yeah, there, it, it, you have your work cut out for you with a bad audience because the producers are looking at you going, Hey, we worked all week. We want to have a great audience for our actors and the actors want to get big laughs. And all I'm hearing is, ah. no, uh-huh. that's when you dive in, you got to goose them. So what is my job? My job is to make the producers happy uh-huh. and make the actors energize that they're, they're ad living, they're having fun, they're goofing off and they're milking each laugh because they know that audience loves them. Uh-huh. And that's when it's like, okay, now we're in golden time. This yeah. is great. <laughs> then you have fun. And, in your press kit, you you got some really good feedback from the people you worked with, like Julia Louis Dreyfus, um, um, what's his name, Ted Danson, and you know the, those people really liked having you in their corner because you put the audience where they were supposed to be. So you obviously made that like an art form yourself. It, well, uh, you do anything, you you do it with excellence, and yeah. you try and be the best you can. And when you're on those shows. You're on them for three, four, five years, uh-huh. and you get to know the stars, uh-huh. and it's, it's it's been fun. And so there's there's really nothing quite like going to the first show and having Julie Louis Dreyfus come up and give you a hug, and you know, and know her family, and Ted Danson, yeah, um, you know, come over and talk. You know, it's like it's it's just now not everybody loves you on these shows. I will say that <laughs> when I when I did just shoot me, uh, David Spade was on the show, and he's a comedian and he's insecure. And so every time I would be making jokes in the background between scenes, he he was never sure. Is he talking about me? Are they, are they laughing at me? Or, and so he, he would just disappear. And so George Siegel came over one time and he goes, he goes, Robert, we all love you. But for some reason, David hates you. We don't know why. 
You know, like I just hold on to that. It's the same as having Norman Lear love me. I love it that David Spade hated me. Uh-huh. It's like that's okay. I get it. Uh, it's not a problem. The comics are insecure, uh, yeah. but you, it does become a relationship with the show, and uh-huh. especially with the producers, because they want to rely on you, and they can just give you the look and say, you know, they can't do this. They got to do this. Take care of that. Yeah. And uh, then you, you, yeah, you you become their guy. Yeah. Uh, that they trust. So. It's funny you mentioned Spade because I just uh, got through the audio book of his uh, autobiography. And uh, we, my wife and I, we, were, um, we met our family because my son's in Huntsville, my daughter's in D.C., and she's got my grandson. And we wanted to have a weekend together that was COVID-free, so we got a uh, cabin, and we all met in Kentucky. And um, because her husband's uncle was going to be there on a lake. So we, we, uh, all met there and I listened to the David Spade thing on the way there. And, and, you know, you might, well, a lot of people find him unlikable. Um, they, they, they don't like him. And all I wanted to do was just go find him and hug him and say, everything's going to be okay because he has still not gotten out of all the insecurities that he had when he was a kid. And, and, you know, just to carry that with you for so long, that's gotta be tough. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to insult David here. I yeah. think everybody has their own thing, but you can just smell that insecurity. Oh yeah. 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 And it's just, uh, I mean, and you know, I, I think, you know, he's about my age and I think he's, he, he's brilliant. In some of the stuff that movie he had out, uh, on Netflix, my wife and I watched it and we really liked it. And, um, and I don't remember the name of it. All you did was watch Tommy boy and go, okay. Yeah. You've won me over for life. That's yeah. <laughs> so, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, have you always worked clean? Yes. And it was, <laughs> there, there were a couple of comedians back when I was starting to go, Hey Bob, uh, whenever you come up with a dirty joke, cause I know you have them, give them to me. And I go, uh-huh. I just don't do that. He goes, oh, we know you do. We know that you write them and you throw them away. Give them to us. And so, um, it was something from the very beginning and it really came from, well, both my background, um, being raised and, and having my mother as my mother, uh, and, mm-hmm. but also just the, the, the logic of it. Leno always talks about working clean. Mm-hmm. He says if you work clean, then you can work anywhere. If you work dirty, you're going to cut half your audience out. And it's true. So if I do a corporation, and, and TV warm-up is a perfect example of it. Right. The show itself can be dirty. They can make windows, but if I am dirty, they get mad at me. It's like, no, 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 no. Right. The audience can accept the star doing it, but you have to be clean. So I always work clean because, I mean, there's an innuendo. You're going to step over the line every once in a while. That's going to happen. But especially when I started working churches, um, the the stand-up comedy clubs were not going well for me. So I said, all right, that's it. I'm just going to, I'm going to take a leap of faith. I'm going to work in churches. And it's like, then my career basically exploded Mm -hmm. because now I found my audience. I found people who want to laugh. They just don't want to feel like they have to take a shower when they leave. And so, Mm -hmm. and also the age demographic went from this very narrow window of people going to the comedy club, basically for foreplay. I mean, you're just there to sell drinks and and let them spend a little time before they go back to together uh, to wherever they're going. Uh, (laughs) But when you do a church, you've got, 
kids, you've got married couples, you've got older married couples, you've got grandmas and grandpas. So it's a spectrum of society that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I think of growing up, I think of my whole family coming over for family reunions and watching my dad basically hold court because he was hilarious. Mm -hmm. And I'd watch him and say, that's what I want to do. And so I just, I mean, everybody I loved from Red Skelton, Jack Benny, all these people, Bob Hope, they were all clean. So I didn't have, and Bill Cosby was clean. Mm -hmm. I didn't look at comedians like Richard Pryor. I admired him for what he did. Lenny Bruce, I admired him for what he did, but I knew where my audience was and who I am. Mm -hmm. And so it is, you have to be true to yourself. And so, yeah, I just always done that and it's made my mother very proud so uh, <laughs> i tell all comedians that do you want to get on dry bar comedy well then you have to work clean yeah now you can work dirty and they will either cut it out or you can change it and once you change a word that joke doesn't have the same rhythm now yeah. it doesn't get the same laugh it's like no when i drop the f-bomb it's a huge laugh and i just said darn and they kind of went eh. it's like well that proves that the joke was not strong enough yeah so that's the other point of all this if you can be really funny while you're being clean and not with innuendos, then you're you're just you're a much better writer. Yes. Uh, I remember I went on a cruise one time, and this guy did nothing. Uh, well, the, the actual phrase is, we'll just call it what it is. They're dick jokes. Dick mm-hmm. jokes or anything. It's like below the belt. They're crude. They're stupid. Yep. And he did nothing but dick jokes. But he just changed a word or two, so it made, he wouldn't say the word whatever you're thinking, he would just euphemize it mm-hmm. and then say, isn't that good to be in a clean show? And I'd go, yeah. i go, you're a liar. You're not a clean act. This is a horrible act. <laughs> my relatives say, why are you so mad at him? He's a hack and he's a liar and he's, he's disingenuous. Yeah. So yeah, I am, I'm quite a stickler for, if you're going to curse, curse, go ahead. Yeah. Um, but just know that's who you are. Uh-huh. I know who I am. So that's, I don't work that way. Right. And, it's kind of nice that there's a resurgence of the clean comedy. I mean, Gaffigan, uh, Bargetsy, you know, th- there's, there's a lot of things happening around the clean comedy that is making it cool again. Um, uh, I've, I saw Bargetsy twice last year. I saw the same show twice cause I liked it so much. And once in Indy and once in South Bend and, um, when you look at the demographics of his audience, it's all the way, it's just like your church. It's all the way down to kids. I see, you know, um, uh, guys, my age that are in motorcycle gangs. I see, you know, um, punk haircuts and all kinds of stuff. And, and they all come together and they all laugh because he's funny and he doesn't even get near. I mean, not even in the same room as, uh, anything dirty i mean it's it's it, he's cleaner than gaffigan and yeah, brian regan's another one There's yeah regan yeah and Mulaney is 98 percent clean but yeah he'll drop something every once in a while yeah but then there's other people you look at them and go well why why would you ended your whole routine on just a really foul dirty joke that um it just distanced you from the audience why why would you do that? And, yeah. say, and those, I, I kind of feel sorry for those people. But yeah, the the craft of being funny and clean is it, it's a point of honor for me more than anything else. Yeah, and yeah, it's so funny. I feel the same. I had a, a a comic give me a tag on one of the bits that I did, and it was the f bomb. And so I went ahead and tried it one night, and I was like, I absolutely can't do this again. It's not me. And and the funny thing is, is in real life, I swear a lot. 
and and I, you know, my phone uh, predictive test text for me and learns my stuff. And when I type the letter F in, you know what comes up, and because so, it's the way fudge, I fudge, fudge, fudge. Yeah, but my uh, but my persona on stage has to be like super squeaky clean because that's just what fits me, and and all my writing just goes to that place, and I I can't ever imagine trying to do an R-rated act. Well, and I tell people it's about trust as well. Um, The people who bring you in want to be able to trust you. And once you slip once or slip twice, and if you do it three times, they'll never trust you again. It's like, we can have that person here. It's like, they're a live wire. I don't know what they're going to say. So Mm. they, they, they let you go. Yeah. And my life depends on coming back again. Yeah. Uh, I'm not into burn bridges. So yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So let's talk about punching up scripts. I, uh, I read your, your press kit. What, what, so when you're punching up a script, obviously somebody's written it. What, what's, what's your job to do when you're doing punching it up? Well, uh, they always have a table read on all sitcoms and Mm -hmm. you just learn what the rhythm is. Once you've been doing comedy for a while, you kind of, you feel where the lag is. Mm -hmm. It's like, nah, this, this, this page here, this is dead, or this isn't working, or this, I know what you're trying to get. It's the, same, it's the exact same skill, whether it's stand-up or scripts. You're looking at something, and you're seeing not what's bad. You're not You're not saying, this is this sucks. It's always what works, what can be improved. Mm-hmm. It's like, I get the general idea here, but you're not precise with it. So punching up to me is finding the exact joke. You go from soft humor to a hard-edged killer joke. Mm-hmm. Um my my favorite one was, um, and you may call this dirty, but it was on step by step, and we're they're going around, and and there's one guy, and he's talking about chickens and how he doesn't like to eat eggs because uh, the high cholesterol, and he says, well, no, I don't like to. So everybody's pitching, uh, I don't eat eggs because the shell gets in them, and I said, well, no, I don't eat eggs because they come out of a chicken's butt. Yeah, and I was <laughs> like, okay, it's a crude joke, but it's like it fit that guy's character. Yeah, and everybody just. They just died. It's like, that's it. Uh, then there was another time. And so, I mean, I didn't have that many, but I just remember the specific jokes on, because you're asking, how do you punch it up? So you're trying to find um, something. It's like this. Seinfeld is the king of it's like this. He does yeah. simile and allegory out the, out the wazoo. So it was one of those, the older guy, Cody, was trying to explain on step-by-step to one of the younger kids that he hadn't slept with a girl before, trying to explain that he's a virgin. And so he's trying to find euphemistic ways of saying it. And then I said, well, I said, how? so he's trying to relate to a younger kid. So I said, so it's like Star Trek. Uh, I'm Captain Kirk. I have not boldly gone where other men have gone before. Uh, <laughs> and, so, and it was enough of a, okay, he's kind of a Trekkie. That makes sense. It fits his character and it gets a big laugh and we're out. And right. everybody understands where we're going. So that's the magic of it. When you find that joke that you go, that's what I'm trying to say. But it also has to be something that the audience doesn't expect. Uh-huh. So the art of punching up is finding the weak spot. You're finding the weak link in your routine or your script, and it just isn't flowing. It's not It's not popping. Yeah. And yeah. then you rewrite it. Uh, uh-huh. So um, the latest one, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I can even get through with this one, if I can say it on stage. As I said, I'm updating the Wizard of Oz to today's culture. Uh-huh. And 
when they go through, they go through the haunted forest and the cowardly lion, you know, is going, you know, I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. And I was trying, okay, let's do black lives matter. Let's, let's make it a twist on uh goat dead lives matter. Um, uh, it just went on and on and on and on. So finally I said, no, no, let's just take the obvious. When the cowardly lion says, I do believe in spooks. Uh, Dorothy goes, grandpa, never say that in public ever again. Yeah. <laughs> so like, okay, now we're cutting to the chase. And I think that might work, but it's a, a lot of times when you rewrite, the other secret is brevity. Page is it's like it just goes on and on and on. It's like you're, you're losing the audience. There are too many words. Just yeah. shut up. Just what are you trying to say? Get to the essence of it and get out. Yeah. I don't know if you know Nazareth. Uh, he's a good friend. He's a very funny comedian. And we have lunch about once a month. I'm going to meet him tomorrow, but it'll be virtual this time. Uh-huh. And so he'll give his routine. And sometimes he has a really great premise. And then a really great joke. And then he starts going off on like 20,000 rabbit trails. They go, Nazareth, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is the point. You had me. And then he lost because he goes, so I should just say boom, boom, boom. Yes, that's it right there. Yeah. So it's finding the essence in the shortest amount of words. Yeah. A good comedian is able to, whether it's on, on the page or on stage, they're able to, yeah, the fewest amount of words from the setup to the, to the end, to the laugh. If it's this long, it's like, sorry, that's just it. I, you lost me. Mm-hmm. Boom. Get to it and get out. So yeah. I think the skill of rewriting is learning how to edit. Right. And it, it is really the hardest thing to do. I've, uh, I've participated in quite a few, uh, like writing workshops during this pandemic. And it's a, like a private thing where there's like four of us in a room and we, uh, a virtual room and we go over our stuff. And it's really nice to hear from somebody who is maybe either further along than me or a little, little bit more seasoned at their craft, uh, to have them say, Hey, if you cut this, this, and this out and move this tag over here, then you've got gold and then you actually put it to use and it works for you. It's really nice to have that kind of help but it's another thing it's almost like stepping away from a joke for a while you have to have somebody else hear it and uh give their input i mean sometimes their input is not where you want to go at all but sometimes it's really right on and uh the fact that you get together with nazareth like that that's pretty cool well what you're saying right there is you said somebody else heard it. Well, you know what? You heard it too. I find that when I say my routines out loud, yeah. I can go, Oh yeah, I'm never going to say that on stage. That's just way too many words. I, yeah. I need to, so I'll just make a note myself. So it really helps almost performing it for another person in a writer's workshop. So that that's also part of it. And that's yeah. why they, as I said, we started, we wouldn't rewrite a script until we did the staged reading uh-huh. and then you hear, Oh, yeah, that, that's not funny because they—it's not the actor's fault. It's, it's the we got to fix that. Yeah. So we, the producers have put X's on the page and fold down pages and question marks, and so now we know the areas we have to go back and fix. Yeah. Um, I've been uh, listening to Berbiglia's podcast, and I'm stealing something from him that I'm going to start using for all of them. What is the uh, best advice you ever got for from a comedian or somebody in the business? First off, Berbiglia, I, I think his one-man show, it was genius. Yep. Uh, his, his last one, the new one, yeah. um, best use of props I've, I've ever seen. Um, I've got a couple. Um, best advice was probably the advice that nobody cares about you. And that may sound horrible, but 
Um, Hollywood doesn't care about you. You're just a commodity. And so realize that early on and know you have to be good. Uh, I also love Steve Martin's line, be so good they can't deny you. Yeah. I think I've lived with that. It's like, oh, is yeah. this so good that no one can deny it? Yeah. And if it's not, I go back and rewrite it. But knowing that no one cares about me, my family does, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my, my friends do, but Hollywood doesn't. No, if I don't do the job and I don't do it to excellence, I'm gone. And the next guy comes in uh, and may say, oh, and <laughs> one of the guys also said, Hollywood never tells you when your career is over. They just stop calling. Yeah. It's like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's really good advice. So, um, yeah, they're, but probably the, the, the best thing I ever got was from a producer and uh, I was working on the Hogan family and Drew Carey show, but I was also starting to write on some of these shows and I was mm-hmm. going in and because I was writing on the shows, I was getting kind of a big head and I wasn't paying as much attention to the TV warm up. And she called me up and she, I mean, I, I love her for this because it was hard. And she goes, people are talking. And they're noticing you're not spending enough time doing the TV warm up. You're kind of sloughing off there because you're 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 the writer now. And she said, "Never forget what your first job is." I went, "Oh, thank you very much." I'd lost sight. I'd lost sight of what I was supposed to do. Yeah. So I went back and redoubled my efforts with the warm up because the only reason I got the, the the writing gig was because I was doing a good job as a warm up. Yeah. So you can forget how you started. You could forget what, what got you there in the first place. And you, you get, you like the accoutrement. Oh yeah. I like the fame. I'm getting money here. I don't have to show up for that. Uh Yes, you do. So never forget your first job. What got you there? And another friend always said that uh, every job you do, you're auditioning for your next one. So, you know, people don't forget that 10 years later, they'll come back to you. I was fortunate enough to have Norman Lear, get a relationship with him back in the nineties and he did a failed sitcom then another failed sitcom, but he remembered me. And mm-hmm. so when he came back with one day at a time and rebooted it on Netflix, now it's on pop TV, um, actually it premiered on CBS last night. Uh, let's hope the numbers are good. Um, <laughs> I was one of the first calls that um, his producer made. Says, uh-huh. Well, no, Norman wants to make sure that the audience is taken care of. Then he can work on everything else. It's like, Okay, that's great to know because he knows the audience and he knows what his ear wants. Yeah. And so he says, if Robert's available, I want Robert to do it. Well, that just proves that I auditioned for my next job a decade earlier, yeah. uh, 15 years almost. So those kind of things. That's a are- great compliment. I mean, I mean that I, I, I would be uh, so proud of myself if, if that happened. <laughs> but yeah, that's bank and that's about it so yeah yeah that's great and you know um i think you're right in the you know hollywood doesn't care but um i bet you've made some pretty good relationships along the way where you've uh made some good friendships uh with people who who do care so i i think that's another good uh side benefit to the business oh i i have some of my dearest friends in the comedy world uh but you know we're, we're not next to each other it's like, yeah uh, it's calls and zoom and you know what do you think of this routine so nazareth and i live close enough we can get together and josh noby i don't know him but he just moved out to arizona it's hard to keep up relationships because you're so far away from each other no it's um there's a lot of really great people although there's a lot of neurotic people in comedy as well oh really yeah you think (laughs) i know it's a big surprise uh people are just falling over right now when my (laughs) I, I just taught my first master comedy class, you know, after 33 years, everything you're saying today, it's like, okay, pretty much all of it's in my master comedy class. And, uh, my wife said, if you can teach them nothing else, teach them 
how to be real human beings. Yeah. And it was like, okay, because so many of them are, they're always on or they're trying to perform or they're trying to impress you. It's like, hey, just, just, just be a person. Yeah. Just be a normal person. Because <laughs> we, people have come over, we've had them over for dinner. My wife will be there and she's made dinner. And, and this comedian won't ask my wife a single question the whole night. It's like, how? And, and I've done that. I've taken people out to dinner and they just talk about themselves the whole time. Mm. That's kind of what this podcast is. Me talking about me. I haven't yeah. asked Scott. Yeah, I haven't asked you a single question, but um, that's kind of that's the, the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. For you at this moment. So <laughs> we'll forget that I'm an arrogant jerk. Uh, but it's a, just, just be a normal person with feelings and then you'll be a much better comedian. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that teaching that is important. And, and some, sometimes that's just got to come from, uh, being raised right too. I mean, sometimes it's just too late. (laughs) You can't, you can't get to them. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of studies out that show that if you don't read to your kids and get them somewhat literate before they're in kindergarten, then they are way more than one year behind. They are, you know, four or five years behind. So, um, and that's the same with your, uh, mental development too. Um, so last question is, uh, my question, I didn't steal this from the Burbigs. It's, uh, um, what are three things, you know, now that you wish you would have known when you started doing stand up? Wow. That's a really good question. Ain't it though? Um, it is a good question. Um, <laughs> three things I wish I knew. Um, well, I'd say probably the most important lesson I learned, um, that I wish I knew then was, um, you know, you're not all that. Um, it is, it's really about your relationships with your friends and your family that it's so much more important than how funny you are Mm -hmm. because, and, and, and that goes uh, again with my, my faith-based background, but it's like, you can gain the world. And if you lose your family and your friends, it's like, what, what, what good is that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do wish I had a mentor. I wish I had a mentor growing up. So if, if I were to start again, the second piece of advice is find a mentor, find someone who's been down the road. Mm-hmm. And I was so headstrong. It's like, Oh, I can do this on my own. You know, I'm, I'm smart enough. Now that my problem was competency. I was actually competent, but I didn't have guidance. Mm-hmm. And there's so many missteps I made. And it's like, I wish, I wish someone would have said, no, no, no. If you want to do this, you got to start early and then work your way toward it. Yeah. So, and the last one is, um, save your money. Don't <laughs> think the big money coming in is going to be there the rest of your life because yeah. it's not. Uh, I bought a big, big house uh, thinking this is my retirement. And then the crash came in 07 and we didn't lose the house, but we lost the value of the house. So my retirement yeah. was gone. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's like, I just, I wasn't paying attention to all that. And mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, I guess, um, well, I guess I'll have to rely on God from this point on, uh, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so you're not all that. Get a get a, a very serious mentor, mm-hmm. and uh, and save that money for a rainy day, which no one will ever do. No yeah. one ever thinks, "Oh no, this money's going to keep coming in." No, no, it's not. It's going to one year it'll dry up. This year was a perfect example of. Oh, uh, I talked to Ron Pearson. I don't know if you know him or not, but he's a, he's a very funny man. He was on Huckabee this last weekend, uh-huh. uh, juggler, and he's a he's a great warm up and he's an actor. But he goes, oh no, I, I knew this was I could smell this coming. So you know, I, I don't think I'll work for another year. But we, we set us money aside. It's like, <laughs> really? Why didn't he call me? What the hell <laughs> uh, uh, I, I tell everybody that 
Um, it's just been amazing that after, I mean, the, the show I was working on, they, they paid us for episodes we didn't even do to keep mm-hmm. the crew together. Um, the stimulus packages, I got residuals and every once in a while our neighbors don't pick up their Amazon packages. So, you know, we get a bonus. So somehow, <laughs> uh, from heaven, we're still here. <laughs> that's, that's funny. This has been a really good talk, Robert. I'm, I'm glad we got together and totally wish you the best because I really enjoy watching somebody who first of all doesn't take themselves so seriously but also is really a master at what they do and when i watched your dry bar special this morning i was impressed and so i'm going to keep watching just uh real quick before uh we sign off if people want to find you see what you're doing and stuff like that where what's the best avenue to do that so it's just my name uh that's my website so it's www robertglee.com right. so robertglee.com and that's got my Facebook and the Twitter and the Instagram and that's got my email if they want to get a hold of me so mm-hmm. um, it, it's all it's all there great great well thanks so much for being on the show this has been a really great talk I really oh, enjoyed pleasure. learning I, I from you I appreciate the questions and um, I, I will add one little thing and I did, while we're you're talking about the advice it's not just empty advice because it does come back because I was I was um, a judge at a comedy competition and the, and the comedy club owner of the ice house who had been around I mean, Smothers brothers started there. He, after a little while, he kind of looked at me and said, you, you don't seem like you're a jerk. <laughs> we, 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 you know, we just kind of laughed. And I said, you know, Bob, after, after being in the business for 33 years, if you're still an asshat, uh-huh. um, you know, it's like you, 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 you wouldn't have a career. Yeah. You have to that you're not all that. And then it will come back to help you because people will say, I want to work with this person. Yeah. And that's, that's another reason to do it. Not just to have a good life with your family and friends, but because people, who do you want to work with? People that you like. Yeah, no doubt. So that's another, it's kind of an add on to that little piece of advice. Yeah. But yeah. That's great. Words, and I thank you for inviting me on your show. Yeah. Thanks. This has been great.